0: I am Scott, and this is Tangents. Um, I gotta tell you, I'm looking at uh, the slow accumulation of these things, and I don't mind it, actually. I uh, Yeah, they're not perfect. They're not quite as cool as I imagined, because I, I, had, this, I had this vision, which I still have, of kind of an immersive um, stereo kind of thing. Uh, that you could put in either augmented reality or virtual reality. Uh, I still have this vision of putting together something where these, instead of being like long episodes, long being various definitions of long. But instead of that, I would like to make something where these are sort of a um, a bunch of tiny little bits and they're reassembled dynamically based on whatever you're interested in. So basically there would be a playlist uh, that would be auto-generated based on tagging or um, you know some kind of topic, just go on. And if you want like endless hours of stuff, you just put it on the playlist and shuffle through. Uh, you probably end up hearing a lot of the same stuff over and over again. It's, it's an interesting, kind of depressing thing when uh, you don't notice it as much when you're not paying attention to yourself and certainly when you're not recording yourself. But uh, people repeat themselves a lot. Um, I, I, I had this roommate years ago. It was, we both got our PhDs at the same time and we were grad students. Um, I guess basically the same time. Didn't meet each other until we were postdocs. And well, he was a postdoc, I was a research scientist. Um, I kind of skipped the postdoc thing. Uh, but basically, we're sort of like a research professor, basically. And uh, we were roommates then um, through a long series of events. And he was a great storyteller. I mean, you know, just would blow you fucking away. And it was an interesting thing because it's one of these things where and I, I like these things in life, although they're sometimes a little frustrating or disappointing. You see something from a distance and then. You you start peeling back the layers and you see it again and again, and you start realizing like what's actually going on there. And he would tell stories and you'd catch it, you know, like you go to a poker night at his place, you hear the stories and it's like, ah, that's a really good story. You become the guy's roommate and you hear the story and then he goes someplace else. He tells the same story again with small changes. And then you go someplace else and, you know, and three or four iterations of this, And you realize oh first off the fidelity in his stories was not great i mean this is a uh, this is a thing our memories are terrible and we're very susceptible to um persuasion and not not necessarily persuasion in that in the sense of like somebody's trying to actively manipulate your memory but we tell ourselves stories and then the story becomes the reality Uh, there's been a lot of study of like eyewitnesses in trials, for example, and people are notoriously just so unreliable at any, even basic things, like if somebody's tall or short. Um, If you, there's a famous one, uh, when I took Psych 101, might've been some slightly higher level, but basically Psych 101, long time ago as an undergrad, watch this video and the video, They show an example of this thing where it's like some stuff happening and uh, you're distracted by all this. And this guy in a monkey suit comes in, does some stuff and goes away. And at the end of the video, uh, because you're so distracted by this stuff, they ask, you know, like, what did you see? What people describe it? Nobody saw the fucking guy in the monkey suit. And then they go back, they replay it and they're like, look at this guy that you totally ignored. And it's total, it was there, it's not like they added it in. Your memory is, well, first off, our ability to pay attention to things is very limited. Our bandwidth is stupidly, stupidly limited. Like, uh, which is not to say that your ability to think is sort of like ooh, galaxy brain. But if I'm like dialoguing, then you're getting a linear stream of words. And what those words mean to you something totally different, potentially, than what they mean to me. Internally, every word that I say, every phrase that I say, every story that I tell, has all of these connections to other events in life. It has deeper meaning. Um, Even the denotation, like the literal meaning of what I say, is not necessarily what you'll interpret. But certainly, if I tell a story, like I talk about uh, my, my roommate Remy, and there's a whole lot of stuff there that you're missing. You're putting something together in your mind, and ideally, you're assembling something that is close enough that we can actually communicate. Uh, it's kind of amazing, actually, that we do. Given uh, given this, and it's one of those things you start noticing. Um, it's like squeezing through. Yeah, and again, I don't want to imply that there's like this vast amount of cognition going on. Our our minds are not. Um, that complicated, but what is coming out is squeezing through this tiny little straw, like pinprick, all this other stuff. And in order to fully explain it, I couldn't, I don't think there's any number of words that could give you the full meaning of even a sentence or two, Um, because everything that you say, everything that you think is informed by experiences and your interpretations of those experiences, which have changed over time. Uh, Your history, just cognitive defects, things that, you know, like my thought process is different than the average person. And I don't mean that in like, oh, I'm so special. I mean, each one of us has differences in how we process information. And, you know, if you're processing information in a way that's different than how I'm processing it, um, unless your level of metacognition is so good that you can actually model me, you're going to have trouble. This is is a thing that gets people into a lot of trouble. Um, And it's it's a frustrating thing that people tend to see, I mean, I I guess there's this also a Psych 101 thing, but if you look at cognitive development, early on in life, we're not even aware of ourselves. We're just kind of um, purely capture stuff and then respond to it. I'm simplifying here, but at a certain point, you become more aware of yourself as like a thing. You've got this idea that you're thinking about yourself thinking. You mm. are aware that you are an individual. And that's kind of a logical leap. It's It seems to be built into, as far as I can tell, our brains. It's not just like a cultural, you learn this at a certain point. I, I don't think it's just an emergent thing where after a certain amount of time um, it comes, mm to being, although perhaps it is if you have enough, enough awareness and ability to process things, maybe you develop that, but I think that it's part of the architecture of our brains. But we get there and then at a certain point you start realizing, oh, other people exist. Um, Seems like a lot of people don't recognize this just from like driving around on the street and you see how often people completely ignore, you know, like obvious things like, the, the one that drives me nuts, this is a stupid one, I'm guilty of it too. But stop light coming up. I'm in the right lane, there's no turning lane, which is annoying, but there's no turning lane. If I stay in the right lane and the person, like I'm going straight, person behind me wants to turn right, they have to wait the light cycle for me. Simply being aware that other people exist, uh, and in a case like this, sometimes, you know, okay, there's a long line in the left, there's no line in the right, maybe, Maybe you could justify to yourself not getting over to the left one, but if you simply like say there's nobody in the left lane or the middle lane, and you would just go over one lane, then the person behind you could actually turn. Now it's a small thing; it's you know like a minute of their life, but it's one of those things like I I don't think I don't think there are that many like really big things. Most of our experience in life comes down to. Little incremental things that make your life just epsilon better, epsilon worse. And okay, you could be very zen about it and like, oh, well, I'm still going to get where I'm going. A I minute's mean, no big deal. But it's still annoying, right? It's still like unnecessary. And there are so many cases like this where people, I mean, this one is not the extreme bad version, but what I see all the time is people almost going out of their way to get in somebody else's way. Um, I I really did not appreciate that. You know, like you see it everywhere. Uh, Cultures are different about it. Some cultures have more and some have less. But I didn't fully appreciate that. I didn't fully grasp how bad that is until I lived in Paris. And I I love Paris. I like the Parisians generally in broad strokes. But one thing that I noticed and this is just a dumb fucking thing, but people will go out of their way to get in each other's way, which, you know, like a simple example, especially say, you're a tourist, you know, you're going to buy a Metro pass, Um, go to the thing. And if you're not like right there, then somebody, you know, almost always will step in front of you. Now, here at least they're benefiting from it, so you can't quite say they're going out of their way to get in somebody else's way. But very often, like on the street, somebody will be walking and they'll almost like block you, like volitionally. You'll see people just do little things like this. Like you have cars, you have two lanes and you have this car and this car and they lock. Now, I'm not saying that this guy is necessarily matching this guy's speed intentionally. They're certainly not aware Either like the optimistic view is they're not aware that there's a line of cars behind them wanting to pass The pessimistic view is that they know it and they like it and I don't know which is the dominant Um, I like to think that it's that people are just oblivious and there's like a weird like a racehorse instinct where um, We just tend to march in line Uh, Maybe that's it. Yeah, but Whatever it is, I, I, I do think a lot of it comes down to getting, like going out of your way to be in somebody else's way. So Paris though, you'd see this all the time. And it just, they're like if you go around and you watch the Parisians, everybody, and I'm, I'm generalizing so obviously I say everybody, I don't mean like 100% of the people, but the vast majority of people are always, like, constitutively a little They have, like, a little annoyance to them. A little dash of anger, you know, and frustration and just irritation. And you look at it, and you're like, why is this? And part of it is just kind of the culture. You know, you know there's a, a French thing, like, you know, complaining is... is, is I, I like it myself. Complaining is kind of a thing you do. It's just, you know, like, you're always a uh, little irritated. But part of it, I think also, I'm I'm convinced, is that everything you're doing, you have a little, just a little like, like somebody's flicking you in the face, pushing you back just a tiny bit. Not enough that it keeps you from accomplishing your task, but it's just that everything is a little harder than it has to be. Everything takes a little longer than it has to take. Everything is a little more annoying than it has to be. And I'd contrast this with And and again, I don't want to imply that the UK is like infinitely better. But if you go to London, you know, and you stand around and look confused in Paris, if you stand around and look confused, like people will go around you, they'll get in your way, they'll do whatever. London, if you look confused, my experience has been almost always, if there are people around, somebody will come up and not just like somebody whose job it is, but somebody will come up to you and offer to help. Just generally. Now again, not a hundred percent. There are plenty of assholes in London. There are plenty of great people in Paris. Um, and also like the Parisians, I don't want to disparage them because, you know, once you get to know people, you start going to like apéro. it's like a cocktail hour or something. People are very, um, very friendly, very courteous. It's not what you see on the street at all. And part of that also I do, you know, if you go to any big city, Um, Part of it is that people are trying to get from A to B, and if you're a tourist and you're just distracted, you're getting in their way. But I do think, I don't know, you go to New York, it's a different feeling. The thing that I actually, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but one thing that I've kind of noticed in New York, and like you used to, I I never really had the idea that New Yorkers were assholes. I still don't. Uh, But a lot of people do. A lot of people think Parisians are assholes. The Parisians Yeah, I'm saying there's a dash of truth to it. The New Yorkers, the more I go back, the more I start thinking that the people who are annoying, the people who are like the real, like the people that you wanna get the fuck away from are actually tourists. So tourists, in my mind, tourists go there, they see the tourists, they think the tourists are New Yorkers, and then they get annoyed by them. And they're like, oh, those New Yorkers are assholes. Uh, People go to to France and uh, you know, especially if you don't speak French or try to speak French and you just go around, you probably have a bad experience. And also, I mean, there's, a, I think it's a parable. I wish I could uh, remember where it comes from, but there's this story of a guy on a road and he's going toward a city. And one of the people coming from that city comes by and says, you know, hey, how's it going? And the guy who's going toward the city, kind of asks him, how are the people there? And the guy who's coming in are like, oh, they're the best people in the world. Great people. And then they go on, you know, "Eh, have a good day. And then somebody else comes and comes down the street and the guy says like, Hey, how are the people in that city? And that person's like, oh, they're miserable. They're terrible. They're like the worst people in the world. And then they're like, okay, well, thank you. Have a good day. And there's more to it, but the the gist of that and what it's trying to get to is basically your like the constant in your life and your experiences is you. I'm I'm boiling away even the barest essence of the content there, but to explain it, the idea is that you are taking with you that experience. which is not to say, like, the Parisians, I do think, are legitimately, like, going out of their way to get in each other's way. But my experience of Paris was overall positive, um, and including the Parisians, other than that one annoying defect. I think a lot of people who have bad experiences of it, um, it's them, you know? I'm just, uh, I'm, not, I'm not blaming them, I'm just saying that it's what they've come in with. And that's not necessarily to say that they're having the same experiences because those experiences that they're having are informed by who they are and how they think and how they act. Which means, you know, like part of it is your interpretation. Um, part of it is you influencing the outcome. Unintentionally, of course, but I mean, similarly to this, there's a, uh, there's a sort of study of emotional set points. And it's it's an interesting thing. Like people tend to have, um, biology very much tends to prefer sort of homeostasis. So it wants things, I mean, I'm not saying like 100% again, but often wants things to kind of remain the same. So like people who are thin, very often, you know, they can eat anything and it, they may get fatter, but they don't get like, People who are fatter, they can sometimes go on diets, and it's just this battle to try to lose weight. Um, But their body, their brain wants to keep it kind of steady. Similarly, people have emotional set points. And like some people, almost no matter what the circumstances, like things can be, everything can be great. They'll be miserable. Other people will be like under, just depressing, sad situations, and things are horrible, objectively horrible, and they're pretty cheerful. They're content, relatively speaking. They may wear, they they may well be aware of like how bad things are, but they're okay. And I'm not saying this is like a. Uh, I don't think this is necessarily a volitional thing. I think it's kind of a combination of like how you're raised, and then probably your biology tends to push you one way or another, but. It's a thing. So getting rolling way back to my my roommate Remy, French guy, didn't mention that, but uh, not really relevant either. But he would tell these stories and, you know, again, great storyteller, but you peel back that layer seeing like, oh, those stories are actually changing over time. And I think this is actually, I think there's a lesson here that if you wanna be a good storyteller, part of it is to tell the story over and over again. I mean, pretty much anything, unless you have some kind of great innate ability, um, practice and repetition makes it better. If you if you listened to me now and compare this to me 10 years ago, or especially like you know, when I was in high school, I had such social anxiety that you know, I, I actually failed sophomore English because at the end of the of the class, I might have told this story before. I will do that. I'm sorry, it's gonna happen. But at the end of the class, you know, we had to write a paper and then read it like one page to the class, and we're going around the class, and I'm like freaking out, and we're going around, it's getting closer, and my throat is choking up and we're going around and it's getting closer and I can feel my eyelid is twitching. It's getting closer and my lip is going like this. Like probably from your perspective, nothing happening, but for me internally, it's like ridiculously flapping. Gets to me, said I didn't do it, so I could get out of of it. And then I also didn't even talk to the teacher because I was so anxious about it. So because of that, I had to retake that semester of sophomore English. I've, I've never, other than that, failed a course in my, uh, in my life. And I don't recommend it, it sucks to retake a class. Although, different teacher, it was different enough that it wasn't as miserable as it could have been, but it, it was not fun. Um, I'm, I'm convinced actually because of that experience that when people start getting into this thing where they're habitually failing and then retaking classes, I I mean, part of it I think is that they get discouraged. Like, I don't think it's necessarily, natural aptitude, probably a factor. But I think also, if you imagine two people have roughly the same natural aptitude, but somebody gets into that, um, and especially if they're kind of told that's where they belong. Once you start taking classes over, you start getting very discouraged, and then you probably pay less attention, you care less, you feel like I'm gonna fail, so you start doing. And uh, similarly, like, I don't know, it's an interesting thing that you see, again, more and more in life as you look at it. Um, Some people hit adversity and habitually kind of push through it. And other people hit a tiny stumbling block and habitually just quit. You know, it's, um, it's kind of frustrating, actually, because you'll see the ladder and you'll be like, you could totally get up and, you know, you're not even knocked down. You're just basically a little dusty just brush yourself off and press on and then you see other people where they will be knocked on their ass and you know like totally totally down almost for the count and then they get up shake it off and keep going and again i don't think this is like like the emotional and physical set points i don't think this is necessarily like uh, they're doing it on purpose i don't think that it's necessarily like people are, you know, like thinking of that. I think a lot of it is just, you kind of, you have a learned helplessness or a learned aptitude and independent of your actual aptitude. And I think also people, you know, I probably have some biological set point for what they're going to do, Um, which is to say like biologically, I think puts, it gives you kind of a range. So the distribution of that range and then where your center is I think are set by biology. And then within that, your experiences can nudge you one way or the other. Um, I think that explains a lot of sort of the nature versus nurture stuff. Um, Not that I am an expert by any means in evolutionary biology or nature or nurture or any of this. Uh, Here I'm, just to be clear, pontificating with very little expertise way outside of my domains of knowledge and expertise. Um, Although, you know, kind of hoping to share some of my insights. Obviously, grain of salt. So, yeah, back to the storytelling. I think to be a good storyteller probably means telling the story over and over again. And it probably also means not necessarily lying, but adjusting the story to the audience. Both to the audience at any moment and just in general. So each time you tell the story, you refine it, you figure out which points uh, are really interesting to people, you figure out which points you can kind of skim over. Um, if you're really good at it, you don't have to keep retelling it as many times, you can tell it once. And like in the ideal case, you know you have enough model of the audience that you could tell the story and already shave off the parts that are boring, already just get to the kernel like that you've boiled down But I think even the best storytellers benefit from repetition. And when you tell a story once, one thing, I mean, this is kind of that learned helplessness thing. I have told stories, and then you can see people are visibly bored. And part of this, of course, is perception. Like, they're not necessarily bored, but you see, like, they do, they yawn or something. And then you read a lot into that, Uh, which goes to that, you know, you're seeing the world through a tiny little pinprick. Maybe they're bored, maybe they're just tired, who knows. But I would tell a story, people would get bored by it and in my interpretation, and then I would just stop telling stories. Um, you might notice now, I'm not so worried about people being bored by what I'm saying because I'm going on and on. Um, the one from Wednesday was like, unintentionally over an hour. Uh, I'm not gonna try to do that today. And especially because looking at the time I have call pretty soon. So yeah, this is a, um, I have constraints. Constraints are good. Um, constraints, it's an interesting thing like haikus or pretty much any, any project where you have no constraints, it's almost too open. Like it's kind of cool, but when you have constraints, even if you're violating the constraints in certain ways, um, but especially if you stick to the constraints, those make you more creative. They make things more interesting very often. And I think that structure actually helps, you know, If you are a painter, um, you might go outside of the canvas just as a kind of novelty thing. The first person who did that, cool. After you've seen it, it's kind of like passe. It's, uh, it's an interesting, I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed with this idea that genius is kind of seeing something that is, because there are things that are not obvious even when you understand them. There are things that you, it takes a lot of work to get to, and then once you have it, it's complicated. But there are other things where once you see it, it's obvious. And before you see it, you probably never would have seen it. You'd live a thousand lifetimes, and you would miss this thing. And then one person comes by and sees it. And, uh, like, light bulb. It's, It's an interesting thing. I. I'm not so confident that people are that much more intelligent than most. You know, I'm not saying that we're, we're dumb, a little bit, but I'm, I am saying that I think a lot of other animals are approaching our level of intelligence, and certainly in many ways. And the thing that I think we really benefit from is the ability to learn from somebody else and to pass on our experiences and knowledge. So my intelligence isn't just based on what I can gather in my lifetime. It's based on thousands, millions, billions of other lifetimes in aggregate, boiled down, all of their wisdom. And then you take that and you start from someplace that's so far above where you would have started on your own. Um, if I've seen further than most, then it's only because I've stood on the shoulders of giants. Um, I think that's Newton. But I think it's true. And I think that's true of all of us. Like, you're, imagine if you had to spend your whole life trying to learn and construct a language. You already have that language. Imagine trying to figure out algebra. Or And when I say figure it out, I mean you have nothing. And you have to figure it out. And you look at all of the things where like one person would contribute a zero, one person would contribute this and that and that. And the amount of time that it takes people to see things that in retrospect are obvious is staggering. And it's something that uh, like, I'm not saying that everybody that does that is a genius, but for me, the real genius is the person who sees that. Uh, it's It's one of the things getting on the idea of storytelling. I would watch George Carlin when I was a kid and probably my favorite comedian. But he would have these observations that were just, in my mind, brilliant. Because they were so insightful and they're about things that you're seeing every day. You're seeing this thing, you're walking by it, you're either ignoring it or not noticing it. It's that monkey in, in the video, just over off the side that you totally missed. And then he points it out and you're like, how did I not see that? And it's so fucking true. Now, he wasn't great at everything. I mean, he did tell people not to vote, which I think we're still paying for today. Um, so it's, it's an interesting and problematic thing. I mean, not that voting gives you that many options. And you know, I, I could go on for a very long time about uh, my thoughts there, but not voting in general, is probably not the best thing for your democracy. Uh, but he was good. And actually, he's a good example of that peeling back the the onion. Because when I was a kid, I'd see him, and I was thinking, oh, this guy is just speaking. In retrospect, this seems dumb, but this is, I was a kid, my defense, just seems like he's speaking extemporaneously. He's up on stage and he's just talking, talking, almost having a conversation with the audience. I just kind of, oh, well, I was just thinking about this. I was just thinking about that. Incidentally what you're seeing here is that uh, which probably explains why it's less structured less tight all of that but it's You know probably through laziness. It's what I do. It's what I prefer. It's also just the style that I like Uh, but You'd see that and then later on many many years later. I started learning about uh, improv and comedy and kind of you start realizing oh those are bits and he's, he's got a notepad or effectively a notepad, comes up with observations, writes them down over time, works on those, you know, finds the best little diamonds in there and then just polishes them and keeps, you know, sharpening them and sculpting them to something great. And then what you're seeing is the end effect of that plus many, many repetitions of the same joke so that he could get the timing right to like probably tens or hundreds of milliseconds. Uh, The the thing that opened, I'm just checking the time here because getting close. The thing that opened my eyes for him was not him. It was actually watching Ellen DeGeneres, um, who I have very ambivalent feelings about at best at the moment, but uh, at the time, I liked her. I thought she was funny. Watching one of her comedy specials and at the end of it, you know, like you see the comedy special, she has the same thing where it feels like it's just, you know, completely extemporaneous, completely out of her ass on stage and funny. But then at the end, she accidentally, not necessarily accidentally, but unintentionally, uh, pulled back the curtain for me because she basically recited Shoop. Uh, Shoop is an old Sultan Pepper song. So uh, she recited it. And I had this realization, like basically an epiphany at the moment. Like I had, to be fair, I had been teed up for it. I had already learned enough about comedy. And I knew some things like, you know, George Carlin practiced a lot and repeated a lot. But I didn't quite know the extent of where this goes until I saw her recite Shoop. And it's very tight, looks like it's extemporaneous. I mean, it's the craziest thing actually, because you could watch it. And even though you know the song, it seems like she's coming up with it in the moment. And it was also very tightly timed. So the cadence, the cadence of her recitation of this was obviously rehearsed. And I just, I saw this and I was like, "Oh, oh my God. And it just instantly I realized, not only is that rehearsed, the whole fucking show is rehearsed. And then you start going back and you're like, "Oh shit, George Carlin is rehearsed." And then later on you read, "Oh, George Carlin would practice these things." And literally like dial it in. Again, like I'm not exaggerating when I say down to like hundreds of milliseconds, get the timing just perfect so you can maximize the punch, maximize the laugh. And he was so good at it that it would seem like it was just coming out of him in the moment. Which is not to say that partly it wasn't. I mean, there is something where you can, like, you could have an interview with him. It certainly would be an extemporaneous interview. But he would do bits in the interview. And, and again, I think actually when you look at human cognition, um, I think this is true of everyone, despite the fact that we don't notice it. I will go through something, and even if you're not doing it intentionally, you will basically go through the same treads that uh, that you've repeated many times. So with that, I think I've got to go. Thank you for listening, and uh, I will be back next week. Zaijian.